0: Hey there, it's Martine. This week, we are going to be airing episodes from The Washington Post's latest investigative podcast, Broken Doors. The series focuses on the use of no-knock warrants in the criminal justice system. And what happens when accountability fails at every level. The series wrapped up earlier this year. So if you've already listened or are just curious about news that's happened regarding no-knock warrants and the cases the podcast covers, we also have an episode out now that gives listeners a comprehensive update. It aired on Monday, so take a look at that. We'll also put a link to the episode in our show notes and at postreports.com. And now, the second episode of Broken Doors. If you haven't listened to the first one, make sure you do that before listening here. And just a warning, this episode contains explicit language and descriptions of violence. Okay, here's the show.
1: <coughs> okay. Do you want to start, or want ta- I mean, is there anything you can tell us, or...
2: Well, here's, here's where
1: we're at. Had you been investigating him?
2: they just things that, you know, that would be better set at the proper times. Here's what I would suggest at this point with you guys, okay? Um,
3: what you're hearing is a secret recording. It was made by a family the day after their loved one, a man named Ricky Keaton, was killed by sheriff's deputies. Ricky's family showed up at the office of Monroe County Sheriff Cecil Cantrell. this meeting took place on October 29 2015. At some point in the first few minutes of that meeting Ricky's niece started recording the conversation on her cell phone. The sheriff and other officials in the room had no idea
2: I wish this is my suggestion I mean we've got you know uh, we do have time plenty of time. I know y'all are in the grieving process. I, what I would do at this point, I would uh, make my arrangements, uh, you know, at the funeral home, and pay you respects, and, and do, your, do the funeral.
3: Some of this may be tough to make out, but what the sheriff is telling Ricky's daughters, sister, and niece is to do their best, to try not to think about what happened, it wasn't the time to be asking questions, that they should focus on the funeral instead.
2: do the best you can. That's that's all you can do at this point. And uh, we'll give you anything that we have as far as the uh, inventory of the properties. A lot of this is just protocol. Mm -hmm.
3: And then... Ricky's daughter, Robbie Giger, makes a request. Can I have copies of the search warrant, the arrest? At the proper time, yes ma'am,
2: we'll give you copies of everything that we have, yes ma'am.
3: But Sheriff Cantrell never gave her a copy of the warrant. Robbie and her family had a lot of other questions for the sheriff about why deputies killed Ricky Keaton in the middle of the night at his mobile home.
2: What I think we don't understand is why y'all had to go in that way. Why couldn't it be handled in a better manner? Because During the day. you wake somebody up at 1 o'clock in the morning, whatever, I don't know what y'all did. And the gun laws, you can have a weapon in your house. He can't, well, can't even tell you. I mean, we want to know why it had to be answer. done in a dirty way like that. It was not done in a dirty way. It had to be. It was done a, it was done in a When walk. you're waking somebody up
3: in the middle I've of the night. I've never heard anything like this in all my years of reporting on police accountability. A family confronting the man in charge in the immediate aftermath of a deadly raid. Ricky's daughter, Robbie, gave me a copy of this secret recording. And by the time I heard this tape, I'd already learned a whole lot about the sheriff's office, including allegations of corruption and misconduct.
2: Did you holler say, Mr. Keaton, this is so-and-so. so and so wake Sheriff department, man. I mean, to me, why, why can't y'all wait back here in the why day? Because you, you know Ricky, you would never pull a gun on you. <laughs> That's what we don't understand. That's our okay, biggest thing. I've come down here to meet with. you. Um, just to saying, talk to you in a, in a lawful and a fair way. I apologize. Well, we Y'all know. are you you're, you're making accusations that you don't know what you're we saying. Don't and I understand, you're it, you know. I understand why you're making them. Just off the public. Wait a minute. I understand why you're making them. But the accusations you're making are not true.
3: Sheriff Cecil Cantrell, again, who you're hearing here, He was at the no knock drug raid at Ricky Keaton's. So were about 12 of his deputies. Five of them sprayed dozens of bullets into Ricky's trailer. He didn't die right away, he was left lying in a pool of his own blood. By the time an ambulance arrived, Ricky Keaton was dead. I'm Jen Abelson, an investigative reporter with the Washington Post, and this is Broken Doors, a series about no-knock warrants—the controversial tactic that allows police to force their way into people's homes without warning.
2: I know they didn't have a probable cause. Probable cause don't mean shit in any Mississippi. Well, I going to sum it up, until they shot the wrong person. <laughs>
3: I want to know. You know what
4: you're doing. You're interrogating me.
3: Last episode, my colleague Nicole Junka and I explained why we started this investigation and how we landed in Monroe County, Mississippi, and we met a man named Benji Edwards. The same sheriff's office raided his home about a year before targeting Ricky Keaton. Deputies broke down his door based on nothing more than a call to the sheriff from some guy who was mad that his girlfriend was staying with Benji. And for as shocking as Benji's story is, it is only a sliver of what's gone on in Monroe County. In this episode, we're diving deeper into how the Monroe County Sheriff's Office used no-knock raids and left some people feeling terrorized. Nationally, we know who bears the brunt of this war on drugs. Low-income communities, people of color. The targets are often Black people like Benji Edwards and poor people like Ricky Keaton. In this rural community, we heard allegations about how the sheriff's office had abused its power and trampled on the rights of residents. We heard accusations of extortion, theft, and sexual misconduct. And that all revealed itself as I dug into the case of Ricky Keaton. So let me take you back a minute to that secret recording from 2015.
2: I'm sorry this has happened. I know you are. Matter of fact, more than you'll ever know. I just don't want anything else. It hurts me as bad as it hurts a lot of people in this room because he and I know all your family.
3: I know all your family. This is important to remember.
2: I know the whole family, and they're just wonderful people. I just don't want When I knew your mama and I knew your daddy, and they were wonderful friends of mine, and good people. Went to church with them, so I know your family.
3: Sheriff Cantrell and Ricky had known each other for a long time, and that's why Ricky's family had a feeling that something wasn't right. So
2: he well, knew Well, that's it. the only thing we Yes, know. ma'am. He knew it? Yes, ma'am.
3: He talked
2: to you? He had cameras. Uh, he's got cameras on I know he has cameras. Yes, ma'am, he does. <laughs> Yes, ma'am, and he knew. So he knew y'all were out there. Yes, ma'am. You you heard him say, "I know you're That's all we knew. He was not a play. I can't go into this case with you. Uh, I can't.
3: I went to Monroe County in June of 2021 to talk to Ricky's daughter, Robbie. She's still fighting all these years later to find out why her dad had to die the way he did. Hi, how are you? Oh, but I can't, sorry, I'm so Robbie's 40 years old. She has this jet black hair that's styled in a short pixie cut. And she's super blunt. The first time my colleague, Rena Flores, and I planned a visit, she warned us not to bother wearing makeup because it was summer, and would just melt off in the Mississippi heat. Hi,
1: this is Rena. Hi, Rena. Nice, nice to meet, meet you. you.
3: We met at her aunt's house, right next to where Ricky grew up. We had barely finished introducing ourselves when Robbie wheeled out a small black filing cabinet filled with documents related to her dad's death. Okay, I have every piece of paper I've ever wrote on That is, go. yeah, that's bigger than my box. Rena saw okay. my box. This is, this <laughs> is my my right <laughs> here. Robbie has spent all this time obsessing over details of this case because she believes the story from law enforcement just doesn't add up. When we spoke, she gave me a sense of what her dad
1: was like. Oh, we talked every day. I'd go down there and sit and watch him work
3: and you know build things and mess with stuff. Robbie says another reason she was suspicious from the beginning was that her dad wasn't a violent man. I've never seen him, you know, hurt anybody or fight with
1: anybody or, you know, do anything that would potentially put anybody in in
3: harm or anything like that. Ricky was a big guy. People called him Round Man. That was his nickname. He knew how to build and fix anything and everything—cars, musical instruments, furniture. He was a bit of a mad mechanical genius. Robbie told me about a time that he built a device to shell peas. Him and my grandfather
1: turned this washing machine into a pea hauler. He would build stuff that was non
3: conventional, and you would think this is never going to work. The way Robbie described her dad, he was kind of a hippie with a long ponytail. Ricky liked to smoke pot, and he'd gotten arrested back in the 90s for selling marijuana and ended up on probation. There aren't many recordings of Ricky, but Robbie found a short Facebook video of her dad taken a few days before he died. He was trying to pull down a tree in his front lawn by tying it to a truck.
0: Zoom!
4: Play it again, Sam. Play it again, Sam.
3: It's dark outside, and the camera is focused on the tree. Ricky only appears for a couple of seconds. He's a white guy. He's tall, sloped shoulders. He's wearing an oversized pink shirt and carrying a flashlight. That long ponytail sticks out of a gray baseball cap and comes about midway down his back. You got two of them? The tree isn't coming down easily. Ricky walks over with a limp toward his friend to try and figure out what's going on.
5: What you gonna do? <laughs> right? punch. Uh, punch.
3: Ricky lived here in Smithville, and his trailer sat on a quiet, dead end road surrounded by oak trees. He'd worked in furniture factories for much of his life, but by 2015, he was mostly doing odd jobs, fixing cars in the workshop next to his trailer. You know, if somebody didn't have something,
6: didn't have money or whatever, Ricky'd give them money. To, but he helped everybody. Everybody liked Ricky.
3: That's Wanda Stigal, Ricky's longtime girlfriend. She loved Ricky's generosity, but they pretty much lived paycheck to paycheck. She says if they had leftover money, they bought plants for their garden or planks of wood for the home that Ricky promised to build them one day.
6: He would take what money he got, and I would take some of mine, and we would buy, you know, start buying wood to where we could build us a house. And, that's, and we had enough wood to, to start a house.
3: I met Wanda during a trip to Mississippi and visited her at home. She showed me a small shrine for Ricky. It was in her living room and had candles and photos.
6: And this is Ricky and my grandson. Uh, my grandson got married, and then Ricky went to the wedding, and Ricky had his picture made with him.
3: What was your sense of him as a as a dad and seeing him as a grandfather?
6: Oh, oh he loved his grandkids. He loved them grandkids. And he loved mine about as much as he did his.
3: Ricky struggled with a bunch of health problems, and he had been hospitalized in early 2015. He had diabetes and one kidney. At 57, his body was pretty banged up from motorcycle accidents. He used a cane at the
1: very end, um, walking and things, because... The arthritis and stuff in his leg. He loved motorcycles. Loved, loved, loved motorcycles. I think it was a freedom thing. Like he wasn't actually closed into something and he could just be, you know, like um, maybe like a bit his out of body experience to where he could ride it and nobody else could, you know, kind of stop it or whatever.
3: When I asked Robbie and Wanda about Ricky's relationship with Sheriff Cantrell, they both told me that Ricky and the sheriff had known each other for a long time. Robbie said Cecil Cantrell actually helped her dad avoid a stiffer sentence after Ricky got arrested for marijuana in the 90s. Back then, Cecil Cantrell was a judge, but by the time of the raid, he was the sheriff. And When I talked with Wanda and Robbie individually about why they thought Ricky was a target for a drug raid on that particular night in late October, they both said the same thing about the sheriff of Monroe County.
6: And he was trying to make himself look good before he get elected again. So he would
3: get all the votes.
1: I knew that he was fixing to be reelected, Cecil.
3: And Robbie also wondered if it was something else
1: or Ricky had something that he
3: wanted. I took a look at a calendar after hearing these serious allegations to try and make sense of what they were saying. So the drug raid at Ricky's home came just days before an election in Monroe County. It was Sheriff Cecil Cantrell's first re-election campaign, so the stakes were high. He was constantly on the news boasting about his drug busts and how he was making the community safer. There were campaign signs all over the place for Sheriff Cantrell. Ricky's sister even had them in her office and front yard. The election was on November 3rd, 2015. It turns out the plan to raid Ricky's home was put into motion one week earlier. Ricky's family has spent years puzzling through different scenarios of what happened. After fatal no-knock raids, it's really hard for anybody to find answers. They typically happen when people are asleep, and police usually refuse to answer questions in the aftermath. We had to piece together that night and the nights leading up to it from multiple sources. Like a lot of raids around the country, deputies in Monroe County weren't wearing body cameras that night. So there was no video footage, but I requested all sorts of public records, interviewed dozens of people, and listened to hours of court depositions from deputies
7: Raise your right hand, please, sir. Do you swear or affirm testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. I uh, will just you take your name, please. Kyle Mitchell. Do you hold a position now with the Monroe County Sheriff's Department? I do. And what is that position?
3: And putting all of it together, here's what I found out. It wasn't a secret in Monroe County that Ricky got busted for marijuana in the 1990s, as Robbie had told me. But since then he didn't have a criminal record. Fast forward, and nearly 20 years later, it's October 2015, and deputies had been hearing that Ricky was, quote, messing up, according to one of those depositions we saw. And apparently, one man told a deputy at least nine months earlier that Ricky was selling drugs. So here's the timeline, as we understand it from those records. On October 27, 2015, based on those tips, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office was watching Ricky's property. During that surveillance, two narcotics agents, including the head of the unit, Eric Sloan, saw this green Chevy pickup truck at Ricky's house. They recognized that it belonged to that man who had claimed Ricky was selling drugs. So, then Deputy Sloan called some colleagues who were on patrol, and he told them to pull over the driver and search the truck for drugs. The deputies did as they were told, they pulled him over about 10 miles away, and they found some meth hidden in his truck. The driver told narcotics agents that he got the drugs from Ricky, and there was more at his home. That was apparently Enough information for Deputy Sloan. He quickly alerted the Monroe County SWAT team and Sheriff Cantrell and told them all to meet him at midnight in a parking lot. They didn't even have a search warrant, but they were making plans to raid Ricky's home that night.
4: And we met there uh, around 12, 12, 12 o'clock.
3: This is Sheriff Cantrell talking to a state investigator, Lieutenant Kenny Bailey, just hours after the raid.
4: And the purpose of meeting there was to
2: get your game plan together. Yeah,
4: we just uh, going to talk and talk about what, what was going, you know, what, where we were going and and uh, what we to expect.
3: So, sometime after midnight, the SWAT team sketched out a game plan while narcotics agent Tony Coxey headed to the house of Judge Robert Folks. He needed the judge to sign the warrant so they could search Ricky's property. Deputy Coxey brought along an affidavit, this piece of paper that listed the reasons for why they wanted to search Ricky's trailer. Usually, these affidavits have a lot of details about surveillance, controlled drug buys. It lists the exact address they're searching. But this affidavit was threadbare. There was nothing about why this warrant needed to be a no-knock. For Ricky's address, they listed the wrong town. And there's a single sentence saying that a confidential source saw something in Ricky's home that he described as meth. That's it. The judge knew Ricky. Deputy Coxey told him it could be dangerous because Ricky had dogs and there was a possibility that he had weapons. That was all it took for judge folks to sign the warrant. So around 12.45 a.m., about a dozen deputies and the sheriff had gathered in the parking lot. I learned from court depositions that in Monroe County, the SWAT team had a tradition before they headed to any raid, and they did it before heading to Ricky's. They gathered in a circle and prayed. What you're going to hear next is the deputy's account Of what happened at Ricky's trailer. And a warning it's going to get graphic. Shortly before 1 a.m., the sheriff and his deputies pulled up to the dead end road where Ricky lived. Under the cover of darkness, the SWAT team climbed over a gate and then formed a single line known as a stack. They moved quickly and quietly in bulletproof vests and helmets along the trailer to a small porch. One deputy then shoved a battering ram into the door, but it didn't budge. So they grabbed a different tool. And the head narcotics officer, Eric Sloan, the one who orchestrated the raid, he had his gun aimed at the trailer. Suddenly, the door opened. Sam Mitchell, the deputy trying to pry open the door, yelled, gun. Another deputy, Hunter Knight, described it like this.
5: Sam hollered, gun. Gun.
7: Uh, the deputies uh, started screaming, sheriff's department, sheriff's department, sheriff's department.
3: Before this moment, it's unclear if anyone identified themselves as law enforcement. Four deputies interviewed that night gave differing accounts of when they heard someone say sheriff's department. But this much is clear. Tony Coxey, the deputy who got the warrant, he was concerned that Ricky had no idea who was at the door.
4: When I heard uh, Sam holler "gun," I screamed out, "Sheriff's department!" to make sure that this guy knew that hey, it was you know um, the sheriff's department that was here and not somebody just breaking into his house. on it. <laughs>
3: Ricky was about three feet away inside the trailer, holding a small black pellet pistol. That's an air-powered gun, like a BB gun. The SWAT team says Ricky shot first. At the time, the deputy said they didn't realize it was not a firearm. Four deputies fired their Glocks. The SWAT leader fired a semi-automatic rifle. So at this point, All of the officers were still outside, and they fired a spray of bullets that ripped through the trailer. A deputy said Shrapnel hit him in his arm and face, so he threw himself over the porch railing to get cover and got injured. At 1 a.m., head narcotics officer Sloan called for help. Sheriff Cantrell was sitting in his truck on the dead-end road leading to Ricky's home when he heard Deputy Sloan's voice come over the radio. Where,
4: where I was positioned, I, I couldn't see anything. Uh, matter of fact, I never did hear anything. Uh, I had my windows up. The next thing we knew, uh, one of the officers, I believe it was it, Officer Eric Sloan, number one come across the radio, said shots fired, need a ambulance.
3: Patrick, this is Laura at Monroe 911. I just got off the phone with the sheriff's department. We do have deputies on the scene, but we need an ambulance. This is a dispatch call made seconds after Ricky Keaton was shot around 1 a.m. The only information we have at this time is shots have been fired. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. He sounded really stressed out, but he didn't say anything about an officer down. So I'm just going to cross my fingers and say my prayers. During this first call, as you just heard, there were very few details, just an address and that shots had been fired. But you can also hear the dispatchers are worried. I learned that weeks earlier, Monroe 911 had actually received a similar call about Deputy Eric Sloan, the head narcotics officer, getting shot in the middle of the night. Now, they didn't know what was going on it would take another 15 minutes before deputies reported the scene at Ricky's trailer was secure. They're still not giving me, um, they're not telling me what it is, but they wanted y'all to go ahead and step it up. They wanted to see what the ETA was. According to one incident report, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office finally advised the ambulance company at 1.16 a.m. of a, quote, possible GSW on the scene. That is a possible gunshot wound. By the time paramedics got to his side at 1.17, Ricky was already dead. He had six gunshot wounds. This is what we've put together from the official police narrative. But there's another account of that night. Ricky Keaton wasn't the only one inside his trailer. His longtime girlfriend, Wanda, she was lying next to him in bed. She told us about it the first time we met with her in Mississippi. Oh,
6: y'all sit down and let me another
3: two. It's difficult for her to talk about what happened, and it's pretty harrowing to listen to. But it's important so that you get a sense of what it's like to be on the other side of the door when it's the middle of the night and there's no warning. And you're going to understand how spot-on Deputy Coxey's concern was that the people inside didn't know who was at the door. So on that Tuesday evening in October, Wanda picked up a pizza for dinner and Ricky had a visitor, that guy in the green truck who deputies later pulled over. He'd been helping Ricky do work around the property. Wanda didn't see Ricky give him any drugs. After he left, Wanda and Ricky smoked a bit of crystal meth. She said they used it maybe a couple times a week. They fell asleep around 10 p.m. with the television on. Everything she told us matched what she told state investigator Lieutenant Bailey that night. By the way, all of the deputies who shot at Ricky refused to talk to him, they called a lawyer instead. Here's Wanda talking to Lieutenant Bailey from the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation. This was recorded the night of the raid.
6: Okay. Ricky woke me up. Tell me somebody was outside. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, I, 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 I was still half asleep. Then I heard the banging on the front door, and he got up
3: and went to the door. Ricky grabbed his pellet pistol. Wanda said they had no clue who was at the door, contradicting what Sheriff Cantrell told Ricky's family.
4: Of course, you can't do nothing but speculate. Did uh, he think it was a
3: police coming?
6: Uh, No. Didn't have any idea.
3: (gasps) Wanda said she thought someone might have been sneaking around out there, up to no good. They'd had two cars stolen out of the yard, and that's why they had cameras around the property.
4: Okay, what did you hear next? I heard them hollering and Okay, do you have any idea how many gunshots you heard?
3: A bunch of them.
4: A bunch of them?
3: She said Ricky opened the door and then slammed it shut as gunfire erupted. Wanda dove onto the floor and hid under the bed. She was so scared that she said she tried to call police from her cell phone. The shooting kept going and going and going. Wanda told us she thought she was going to die.
6: Yeah, when I was under the bed, I was was trying to call 911, but I don't know if I ever got the number dialed. I don't know. I I don't know.
3: What Wanda is describing is hiding under the bed, trying to call the police, not realizing that they were the ones at her doorstep. When the gunfire at Ricky's trailer finally subsided, Wanda heard Ricky call out to her as he was lying on the floor.
4: Did he ever say anything after he fell? He
6: just said one of them shot me or they got me. I don't know. He said something. They got me, I like, think, it's what he said.
3: Those were the last words Wanda heard Ricky say. Deputies stormed into the trailer. Wanda heard them yelling over and over again. They've got cameras, they've got cameras. One deputy handcuffed Wanda and guided her out of the bedroom. Ricky's body was blocking the way. They wanted her to walk over Ricky, and she refused.
6: They wouldn't make a stairbury room and I wouldn't do it.
3: And they put a quilt over it.
6: That's what I want out.
3: Deputies grabbed a tan blanket from the bedroom and placed it over Ricky's body. As they led Wanda outside, she couldn't understand why she was the one handcuffed.
6: I couldn't figure why they was arresting me when they were the one that was doing the killing.
3: While I was in Monroe County, I wanted to see the trailer and try to understand the conflicting stories. Ricky's daughter, Robbie, and his sister, Debbie Lawler, brought us over to the property.
5: When we pulled in right there, the trailer on the right, there used to be a, behind that trailer, actually used to be a yellow house.
3: We drove down a gravel dead-end road until we came to a gate in front of Ricky's dirt driveway. On the left side was Ricky's workshop covered in red aluminum siding. There was a swing nearby, and that's where Wanda sat handcuffed after the shooting. To the right of the driveway was a single wide beige trailer with stepping stones leading up to a small porch in the back. One of the stones, I noticed, was etched with the names of Ricky and Wanda. I saw round gashes all over the trailer.
5: You see the yellow stuff on there, the brownish looking stuff? And the tape?
3: The tape. Those all are all bullet
5: holes. Bullet holes even all the way up there, that's bullet holes all the way through there. And the door
1: had a bunch of bullet holes. And we there, had to take of it course. off.
3: A state investigator tallied about 49 holes around the trailer. I lost count myself. There were clusters by the front door and the bedroom where Ricky and Wanda were sleeping that night, but the holes were all over the place. When I stepped inside, I saw how bullets ricocheted off the washer and dryer next to the door, how they pierced Through the shower, how bullets went through one side of a kitchen cabinet and came out the other. And I I
1: patched these, um, but you can see where the bullet holes, where they were.
3: There were no windows on the side or back of the bedroom near the door. No way to pull back the shades and see what was going on outside. Robbie and Debbie showed us where Ricky had cameras around the property, but. In the days after the raid, state investigators couldn't find them. They just disappeared for a while. So many things just didn't add up.
5: Good afternoon, everybody,
7: and thank you for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Steve Schill. Topping midday, an officer-involved shooting in Monroe County ends with one man dead. Investigators saying the suspect opened fire on deputies. The Mississippi Bureau of-
3: And then Sheriff Cantrell was on TV with an alarming account of what went down
0: at Ricky's home. Deputies and SWAT team members then tried to serve a warrant at his home. That's when Keaton opened fire, hitting one deputy. Officers shot back, killing Keaton. Monroe County Sheriff Cecil Cantrell says they've suspected Keaton was involved in the drug trade, but where he is receiving these drugs is what worries him the most.
4: We do know that uh, that these drugs is hooked up with a Mexican cartel. We do know that the-
3: uh, Two things stood out to me from this news story. The deputy shot is
0: expected to make a full recovery.
3: That injured deputy in the news report. He's the one who threw himself over the porch railing to avoid the shrapnel. He later said in a deposition that he got hit in three spots on his leg. Ricky's pellet pistol was only missing one pellet. In that deposition, the deputy also said he didn't think there was any way to know if his leg injuries were actually from a pellet or shrapnel. So let's go back to that thing Sheriff Cantrell was saying, about a Mexican drug cartel.
4: We do know that uh, that these drugs is hooked up with a Mexican cartel. We do know that the uh, Mexican cartel is bringing drugs into North Mississippi. We think that maybe the Mexican cartel did bring these drugs to Monroe County.
3: I wanna tell you that I've not been able to find any evidence to suggest that Ricky Keaton had a relationship with any Mexican drug cartel. I asked Robbie if I could look through Ricky's cell phone and she let me hold on to it for months. It's a black Samsung flip phone. I searched through his incoming and outgoing messages and calls. In the days before his death, Ricky texted about batteries, drills, hard drives, and stakes. He also wished his daughter a happy birthday. I remember talking to Tanya Willems, the person who handled PR for the sheriff's office. She was responsible for calling television stations after drug busts. And she was working for Sheriff Cecil Cantrell when Ricky Keaton got shot. I remember afterward, they were like, Cecil had gone on the news and talked about like these ties to the Mexican drug cartel, which like, oh, I guess some God. people were like, what? Tell me about that.
8: Um, I believed less than half of whatever Cecil said. So whenever he would, I'll put it this way. All of us that were in law enforcement and have worked in it would cringe every time Cecil would get on the news because there was no telling what he might say. If guy was affiliated with the Mexican Mafia, I mean, who knows? I... I, I I'm not privy to that information, but every time Cecil talked, I rolled my eyes.
3: But with the drug bust that like he wanted, you know, the media to cover every single thing, did he view this like what? Why did he think that was so important for him?
8: So he could get reelected. He he didn't care. Uh, people think that oh Cecil cared so much. He he didn't care about cleaning it up. It was for a vote. It
1: was for a vote.
8: If it's for a vote. That's all it was. So he could get reelected. That's the impression I got.
3: Seeing Sheriff Cantrell all over the news, hearing him say these things about Ricky being involved with a Mexican drug cartel enraged his family. Ricky's sister Debbie, who had campaign signs for the sheriff in her front yard, she headed to her garage and grabbed lighter fluid, charcoal starter, and a hammer. Because uh, I was so mad, and it just
5: felt like revenge, you know. I am surely not fixing to have your sign sitting in my yard when you murdered my brother. That ain't happening. And I set them on fire, and I just kept burning them till there was nothing left.
3: Within days, Robbie hired a lawyer. She and her sisters filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Monroe County soon after. I spent a lot of time reviewing civil lawsuits involving no-knocks around the country, Many of them end in settlements or get dismissed by the courts, but the Keaton family's case has dragged on for close to six years. It's one of the only wrongful death lawsuits involving a no-knock raid that appears to be heading to trial. I didn't expect what kind of work this lawsuit meant for Robbie. She has spent so much time waging this legal battle, and she stuffed her black filing cabinet on wheels with documents, CDs… Meticulous notes.
1: Because I wanted to know. I wanted to break it down and I wanted to be able to recreate it because I couldn't remember what was said um, and I wanted to know what kind of lies they were telling.
3: Robbie has zero legal experience. At the time of Ricky's death, she was a stay at home mom with two young kids. Robbie was living on an Air Force base in Colorado where her husband was stationed. She left them all to travel to Mississippi for every deposition, every hearing. Court officials mistakenly thought she was part of the legal team. One of her daughter's friends asked whether she had a mom because she was gone so frequently. When I was reading through the court records, I kept thinking this wasn't like anything I'd ever seen. Robbie and her sisters weren't just arguing that deputies used excessive force. There were allegations of corruption, extortion, and sexual misconduct in the sheriff's office. And they weren't just claiming the raid at Ricky's trailer was illegal. They were saying virtually every drug raid in Monroe County was a no-knock. There was one name that kept coming up again and again, besides Sheriff Cecil Cantrell. And that was Eric Sloan, the head of narcotics at the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. After the break, what went on in the Sheriff's War on Drugs? Eric Sloan was there the night of Ricky's death and he was the one who got the warrant to raid the home of Benji Edwards. Benji had never seen a copy of the no-knock warrant until I handed it to him in his kitchen. Benji shook his head in disbelief as he read over the words that led police to break down his door. I wanted to find out as much as I could about the chief narcotics officer, Deputy Sloan, I've contacted him many times for an interview, but he hasn't responded. Deputy Sloan has had a lengthy career in law enforcement. He first worked at the Amory Police Department for about a year before getting hired as a deputy at the Monroe County Sheriff's Office in 2004.
7: Mr. Sloan, to raise your right hand, please, sir, do you swear or affirm testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? Absolutely. Would you state your name, please? William Where do you live today, Mr. Small?
3: I knew he was named in the lawsuit filed by Ricky's family. And at a deposition, he had to answer questions from the family's lawyer. I got the audio recording of it.
7: Eventually, at some point, you started to work in narcotics for sheriff counsel, correct? Yes, sir. Approximately what year was that? The same year he took office.
3: Before he became a narcotics officer, Eric Sloan ran for public office as a district supervisor in 2011. A campaign sign he posted on Facebook featured a photo of him with his wife and two kids under the words, aiming to make a difference. Under the photo, he made a promise, quote, I am committed to make Monroe County a better place to live and raise our children. He lost that election but he moved to the narcotics unit after Sheriff Cantrell took over in 2012. Just over a year later, Deputy Sloan became head of the unit.
7: So were you then the senior narcotics officer for Monroe County? Yes, sir. And what year would that be that you became the senior narcotics officer for? I'm not really sure. Um, <clears throat> would, it, would it be fair to—did did Sheriff Cantrell ever tell you he considered you the head of the narcotics unit?
3: Deputy Sloan was 35 at the time of the raid. He's a tall white guy around six foot five, with reddish hair. And his reputation looms large. I got some intel on his record, and here's some of what I learned. Deputy Sloan repeatedly faced allegations that he abused his power in the years leading up to Ricky's death. His conduct has been the subject of three lawsuits since 2012. That's more than any other deputy, according to the county's records you should know that Eric Sloan's never been arrested or charged with any crime. But I did track down people who accused him of illegally confiscating money, filing false charges, and extortion. One man named Roger Woods said Deputy Sloan illegally confiscated more than $1,200 after his car broke down.
2: He said, "Uh, can I search your vehicle? I said, well, sir, if you need to, you can. He saw an envelope with with uh, cash in it. He said, "Now what is this here?" Also, I said, "Sir, this is my emergency fund money." He said, "Oh, no, boy, this is drug money." He said, "You're not gonna get it back until I can prove where it came from. Confiscate the cash money, and they also not be able to tip him in jail at night."
3: Another man named Unseld Parks accused Eric Sloan of filing false charges against his girlfriend after deputies searched Unseld's home for drugs.
2: She has nothing to do with this, for one. And for two, she doesn't—me and her don't even live together. She have an apartment.
3: Did you ever question, like, whether they actually had probable cause to, like— I know they
2: didn't have a probable cause. That isn't it. Probable cause don't mean shit in Amor, Mississippi.
3: Unseld's girlfriend and Roger, who are both Black, said their lawsuits resulted in settlements. But Monroe County wouldn't tell me how much was paid out. The case filed by Ricky's family is ongoing. And— There's one more story you need to hear about Eric Sloan.
9: I was just dumb at that time. And I guess that's why I kind of felt like I trusted him, but I don't know. I don't know what—I really don't know what I was thinking.
3: This is Stephanie Herring. At one time, she worked as a confidential informant for the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. She's someone with her own set of allegations against Eric Sloan that she reported to deputies. Listening to her story raises all sorts of questions about why Deputy Sloan was even at Ricky's that night. What was he actually searching for? And why did Eric Sloan's boss, Sheriff Cantrell, let it all happen? Stephanie's story gets complicated, but... What happened with Stephanie is key to understanding what Ricky's family alleges in their lawsuit, that corruption in the sheriff's office ran deep, that the motivation for a no-knock raid at Ricky's home was not simply about drugs, and that Deputy Sloan never should have been involved in that October raid in the first place. Stephanie accused Deputy Sloan of extortion and sexual assault just weeks before that raid state and federal investigators, got involved. And it was a tumultuous time for the sheriff's office. So continue you tell me, how old were you at the time, and how old were your kids at the time? 24,
9: so I was 24. That was, uh, yeah, Cherokee was starting kindergarten, so she would have been like five, something like that. They were little. Yeah. I, know, I know my baby baby was little still.
3: Stephanie, who's white, is a single mom with four young girls. She was struggling with a meth addiction when she was accused of being involved in a robbery at her friend's house in August of 2015. Deputies, along with Sheriff Cantrell, showed up to her house to question her. She handed over her phone to prove she was out of town when the robbery happened. But when Deputy Sloan found messages about drugs, Stephanie said he pressured her to work as a confidential informant.
9: And then Eric came up and, you know, told me this, the serious of what was going on, and if I did know anything, you know, let him know he could help me, he could do this, and, you know, brought my kids into it. You know, you don't want to, you know, lose your kids, lose everything, lose, lose everything you got, you know.
3: So she felt like she had to say yes, and as a confidential informant, she helped the sheriff's office bust a meth lab. After that, she wanted out, but she said Deputy Sloan wasn't done. Over the next several days, Stephanie said Deputy Sloan drove her around Monroe County and gave her a tour of the sheriff's office. He knew there was money floating around from that big robbery, she said, and he wanted her to find it. He told her he needed $10,000 and he wanted the money to take his kids to Disney World. And that's when he said, do you not want to take your kids to
9: Disney World? I would love to take my kids to Disney World. All I asked you is to get $10,000 Prove to me, and you would have never had to see me or any of the place again.
3: Stephanie said she figured out who had the money from the robbery, but she had trouble getting the actual cash for Deputy Sloan. During one of their car rides, she said he was mad, insisting that she needed to do more to get this cash. I'm going to need you to try a little harder. And this is where she describes
9: the alleged sexual assault. And, I mean, I'm scared at this point. This is when... Um He put. He kept putting his hand on my leg as we're driving down, back down these windy roads, and I kept pushing him off, pushing him off, pushing him off. And um he tried putting his hands down my pants, and I told him, "No, stop!" And he pulled over on the side of the road, and he said, "You can either put out or get out." And I got out.
3: Stephanie broke down crying when she got home that night and told her mom what happened. Her mom pleaded with Stephanie to report Deputy Sloan, but Stephanie believed if she just helped him, he would leave her alone. She eventually found out where the stolen money was being stashed and shared the location with Deputy Sloan. Hours later, Stephanie learned that he had been shot. She and her mom saw a news report that Deputy Sloan was doing a traffic stop around 3 a.m. when he said a black man riding a red motorcycle shot him. And then sped off. Stephanie shook her head in disbelief. She tried to reach Deputy Sloan, and when they finally spoke, she put the phone on speaker, and her mom, Dottie, was listening nearby. I also talked to Stephanie's mom, and she backed up everything Stephanie said.
9: Well, I texted him, and I got no reply, and I was like, fuck this, I'm calling. So I
3: called. So when you—back before you call him, you see it on the news. What do you think? Are you both watching the news together? I'm like, oh, my God.
9: Yeah, oh, my God. But I said, did you get shot going to get that money? And he said, I played the fifth. That's what—yeah. You heard this conversation? Yeah.
3: I tried to figure out who this black motorcyclist could have been. At the time, there were thousands of dollars offered in rewards, but no one ever found him. Meanwhile, Deputy Sloan appeared uninjured, according to a state report. He had been wearing a bulletproof vest. A few days later, Stephanie was charged with conspiracy to commit a crime for that initial robbery at her friend's house. As soon as she was arrested, Stephanie reported her allegations about Deputy Sloan to the second-in-command at the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. She wrote a statement and talked to a state investigator. And it's consistent with everything she's told me. Officials with the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation gave Stephanie a polygraph test. And I have copies of the results. She passed. The second-in-command at the sheriff's office supplied Stephanie with a recorder to tape conversations she had with Deputy Sloan to see if he said anything incriminating.
9: Uh, hey, my phone went dead and I had to plug it up. I was uh, just letting you know I'm off work for a couple months, so
5: it'll be at least November before I get up
3: This is the only conversation with Deputy Sloan that Stephanie got on tape why are you off for
9: so long? Because I got shot the 24th. Well, I knew that, but I didn't know you had to take off for two months. I did
7: uh, for personal
9: reasons. Well, I was just seeing if you could give me any advice on anything.
2: Um,
5: no, I, I spoke to Rodney about your deal, and uh,
7: he's supposed to help you.
9: Because you're working with us? I mean, I knew that, but... They charged me with the felony. I was wondering if I, how I could get a felony off my record. Well, you're not convicted
5: of it, so...
3: There are two really important parts of this call from September 5th, 2015. One, Deputy Sloan confirms that Stephanie was working with the sheriff's office. Two he tells Stephanie that he's on leave for two months and isn't going to be back until at least November. The raid at Ricky's property happened on October 28th. So why did Sheriff Cantrell have someone leading the narcotics unit who was facing allegations of extortion and sexual assault? You should know that there were a lot of people who were briefed on these allegations against Eric Sloan. There was even talk of the FBI opening a public corruption case. I read about it in a memo that was circulated in the sheriff's office. After Stephanie's call with Deputy Sloan, there was this important meeting in late September. Stephanie wasn't there, but officials from agencies like the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and the FBI discussed her accusations. I tried to talk with Deputy Sloan. I left him a note at his house, mailed him a certified letter, emailed, and called. But again, he never responded. I reached out to his wife and talked with her briefly. Before she hung up on me, she said, quote, we will not ever be talking to you. I tried asking around, and a couple of people who had worked with Deputy Sloan at the sheriff's office described him as a good officer. One of them was Tanya Willems, who ran PR at the sheriff's office. She didn't think much about Sheriff Cantrell, but she spoke positively about Deputy Sloan.
8: Why he put Eric in charge of it? Eric Mm -hmm. Eric was a good officer. Yeah. He's a very good officer.
0: He's a good officer. mm
8: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I worked with Eric for years at Amory PD and at the SO.
3: Deputy Sloan wouldn't talk to me, but he did sit down for that two-hour deposition related to two lawsuits against him. He was asked about what happened with Stephanie, the mysterious shooting, and his participation in no-knock raids. The lawyer for Ricky's family, Jim Wade, showed Eric Sloan a copy of that statement from Stephanie, where she accused him of sexual assault.
7: If I read correctly down there about the third paragraph, it says something about that I I tried to have sex with her or something like that. Right. And uh, your explanation for her making these claims against you is what? Why do you say she makes these claims against you? I don't know why she would make those claims against me. Because there's no reason she should have anything against you.
3: This wasn't the first time Eric Sloan was accused of sexual misconduct. Years earlier, a teenager he knew from church had moved in with his family. She accused him of sexual misconduct and her complaint went before a grand jury. I spoke with her and her mother to confirm these details. In his deposition, Deputy Sloan acknowledged that there was an investigation, but he denied the allegations.
7: Have you have you had any allegations of sexual misconduct made against you? Other than Stephanie hearing, I know you have Stephanie hearing. Do you have any others? No, sir. Nobody has ever alleged that you made improper sexual advances or had improper sex. Not that I'm aware of, no, sir. At any time. No, sir. Uh, and you, you thought about that answer? You're certain that's true? Yes, sir. You, you did not have an occasion when a, a, a child who was living with you made allegations of sexual misconduct against you? Yes, sir. You'd forgotten about that? Yes, sir. When was that? 2000 and I'm not sure. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know what she claimed other than the fact that um, she didn't like the disciplinary actions that um, um, me and my wife enforced and then th- those claims uh, uh, were made, yeah. Alright, did she go to the grand jury for uh, your knowledge? I think so, yes sir. The grand jury
3: never brought charges against Eric Sloan. As for the other allegations from Stephanie, Deputy Sloan denied trying to extort her for $10,000.
7: And you never made any statement to her that if she could get $10,000 of the money back for you to take a trip to Disneyland, that you could take care of the charges for her. You never told her that. No,
3: and remember when Stephanie said Deputy Sloan got shot hours after telling him where to find the robbery money? Deputy Sloan said he had been shot, but he stood by the police account that had happened when he pulled over a motorcyclist in the middle of the night.
7: You say you got shot because you stopped a red motorcycle with no tag? Because that's what happened. Did, did you call in the dispatch to tell them you were stopping a red motorcycle with no tag? I did.
3: When I checked with Monroe County, they couldn't find an audio recording or a paper radio log documenting his call. After nearly an hour of questions, the family's attorney started asking about how often no-knock raids were used in Monroe County. And this is when it became very clear that no-knock raids were the rule and not the exception in this community.
7: Yes, sir. Most all narcotic searches were right. no-knock. All narco- pretty mm-hmm. much all narcotic searches are no-knock. Most all in Monroe County, though. But Am I correct in saying you have never personally participated in a search where you did a knock and gave a person a chance to come to the— Door. Not to my, rec- my recollection, no. While you've been with the Monroe County Sheriff's Ball? I know this might sound like a very difficult and impossible question, but how many of these no-knock search warrants would you say you've executed? I can't put a number on that. Could you say hundreds? Yeah, I, I think that'd be a fair statement. And they've all been no-knock searches? Correct.
3: I thought about Benji, who was targeted in a no-knock raid a year before Ricky. Deputy Sloan had requested the warrant for Benji's home, and I remembered Benji saying the sheriff's office seemed far more interested in finding cash than drugs.
6: That's what they kept hollering. Where's the money? Where's the money? Where's the mm-hmm. money? Where's the money?
3: After talking to Benji, after hearing about all those complaints against Deputy Sloan, after listening to his deposition, I started to question whether these no-knocks were really about the sheriff's war on drugs, about cleaning up Monroe County. Or was this about something entirely different, like money? Deputy Sloan said in his deposition that he expected to find $20,000 at Ricky's trailer. There was no $20,000, just some drugs a state crime lab said it was amphetamine and methamphetamine.
7: Uh, did you see the statement in the newspaper that Cecil said that this transaction was involved with a Mexican drug cartel? Actually, yes, I've read a lot of the newspaper, And that sounds like a pretty serious thing, of Mexican drug cartel being involved in this, correct? Correct. And presumably some Mexican was fixing to come get the $20,000 in the morning. But you and Mr. Coxy decided we're not going to wait to arrest him. We'll just break into Mr. Keaton's house tonight. Objective. Am I correct? Well, that um, form of break-in is not necessarily a good phrase, but uh, do the search warrant? Yes.
3: I saw so many parallels between what happened to Benji and what happened to Ricky. It sounded like deputies went into both raids thinking they were going to find a bunch of money. But then they didn't. And after both drug raids, they seized property that wasn't drug-related at all. At Ricky's, nearly all the deputies who were at the raid returned hours later. They towed away vehicles, lawnmowers, and welding machines. They took bag after bag, along with the cameras from the property. That's why they weren't there when state investigators went looking for them. What the sheriff's office left behind a bong, and an ashtray with marijuana. Taking all this property from Ricky's, this wasn't a one-time thing. Sheriff Cantrell had clear directions for these raids. One deputy described it this way in his deposition for the family's lawsuit. Quote, Seize everything. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Police don't just have unlimited power to take everything in your house because they have a search warrant. Anything seized should be tied to illegal drugs, like paraphernalia or cash from selling drugs. And there should be a paper trail. I started digging around and learned that after Sheriff Cantrell was elected, he withdrew from a regional narcotics group that worked together to make drug busts. One big benefit of leaving was that he didn't have to turn anything over to the regional unit, meaning the sheriff's office got to keep all the money, drugs, and property seized during raids. Do you recall at all, was there any conversation about why they withdrew from the unit?
4: You know, sometimes that can just be political, you know what I mean? And now that, like, there's some some guidelines that they have to follow if they're going to be in the unit.
3: Bruce Dodson is the head of this group. He told me that he got a lot of complaints from attorneys representing people who had their property seized. They said Monroe County wasn't giving the right records or other paperwork.
4: I had attorneys calling me saying, well, they've are you know they've seized some stuff from my client, you know, money or property, and they didn't give us a receipt and they didn't give us any paperwork and, you know, what are we supposed to do? And I just have to tell them, I'm sorry, I'm not, you know, they're not part of the unit anymore. You'll have to just contact the sheriff's department and see what they say.
3: All of this raises questions about systemic issues for years at the sheriff's office, when almost all narcotic raids were no-knocks, and when deputies appeared to seize whatever they wanted during these raids. I knew some people fought to get property back. Ricky's family was among them. They say some things were returned, but not everything. But others, like Benji, didn't know what happened to any of the property or money seized during the raid at his home. In Benji's case, he says he never got a notice or a letter about the two cars they took. I asked the county for any paperwork they might have about the cars and was told they couldn't find any. Deputies also took $96 from Benji's home. He never got that back either.
6: You know, it was like they were uh, uh, robbing people. You know what I'm saying? A police force of, of robbers. You know what I'm saying? That's what it seemed like to me.
3: Benji and others we talked to were convinced that property and money from raid after raid ended up in the pockets of deputies and the sheriff. We've also heard claims that drugs did too. While Benji was in jail for several months, he said one guy who got busted said that when the sheriff went on the news to brag about the arrest and the drugs seized, the amount mentioned was far less than what was actually taken during the raid.
6: You know, like they would maybe put, well, we found an ounce of dope and they'd be on TV with an ounce of dope or something like that and they would show it, you know, this. But the actual guy that they busted would say, man, I had way more dope than that.
3: I heard other troubling accusations from someone I met at the sheriff's office. Dennis Thompson used to run a loan company, and now he's a bail bondsman. For several years, he used to work near the jail's booking area. Dennis talked to everyone, the inmates and the deputies. And he said this was an open secret, that the people in the sheriff's office were personally benefiting from these drug raids.
5: Slaysel would go by and just pocket the money. And he'd pay these guys off. All about money.
3: How do you know that?
5: I heard people talk about it. Heard other Mm -hmm. officers that were there talking about it. I would be in the room, and it wasn't any big secret. These guys talked and laughed about it. Sloan Sloan just thought it was a joke. Sloan said, I'm going to be a millionaire.
3: That's what he said?
5: Oh, yeah. He wanted investment advice
3: he asked
5: you for investment advice yeah I, I said look you got a bunch of cash you can't invest it
3: so is this, they, this is when they would do drug bust they would take the cash and keep it for themselves is what you're take saying the
5: cash, keep the drugs turn in a little bit sell the rest
0: mm-hmm. Dennis also
3: knows many of the people who had been targeted by no-knock warrants, people who had their money and property seized. He was the guy who bailed out both Benji and Ricky's girlfriend Wanda after their raids.
5: Benji Edwards, a black guy from Smithville. I remember him. I remember Wanda, too.
3: Yeah. Well, Wanda you... was
5: so shaken up, I, I, she couldn't even hardly talk. This incident changed her personality 180 I mean, before that, she was — she would talk and giggle and laugh, and when she — she was laying in the bed when they shot that damn — well, she was laying under the bed when they shot shot that damn trailer to pieces. —
3: Dennis said the judge, who was supposed to scrutinize these warrants, just gave the sheriff's office whatever they wanted. He said these raids were terrifying for the community.
5: The judge at the time, Robert Folks, just sent blanket signed a bunch of these things.
3: Why do you feel like? I mean, I know you talked about like if you know, if this were to happen again, you would, you would report or say something. Like, why do you feel like it's important to speak out now?
5: Well, I don't know. Maybe I was just blinded. Uh, I don't know why I didn't do it to start with. It wasn't like I, I don't know. I, I'm really ashamed of myself for not reporting Cecil, but. In Mississippi, there's who you gonna hell you gonna report anything to. I mean, this is the most backward-ass place you can imagine to live. There's no media presence that matters. Nobody examines anything. They all, the police are all powerful. They do everything. You know, they're next to Jesus.
3: next time on Broken Doors. I want to know... You know what
4: you're doing? You're interrogating me.
3: Oh, I don't think so. I'm trying to have an interview. You want to ask me some questions? You can,
0: I mean... I want to see that paper. Broken Doors is hosted by Jen Abelson and Nicole Dunca. It's produced by Rena Flores, Sabi Robinson, and Lena Muhammad. It's edited by Renita Jablonski and David Fallis, with additional editing by Theo Balcom and Sarah Childress. Original music, sound design, mixing, and theme by Ted Muldoon. All the episodes in the series are out now. To listen and subscribe, go to washingtonpostcom Doors or your favorite podcast app. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back with more stories from The Washington Post.